Amen. Thank you for that. My title for you this morning is simply, We Have Overcome. We Have Overcome. No one begins their day saying to themselves, I hope I fail miserably today. I hope I meet every challenge and difficulty with laziness and a lackluster attempt at success. No one begins their day like that. You laugh because even among those who put forth zero effort, there is still some sort of expectation of success or victory. Maybe it's because some of us have worked incredibly hard. We've experienced victory. We've tasted it and know what it's like and know that we can achieve it again. Or maybe it's because our parents made us soft and entitled. We played for a league that gave every player on every team within the league a participation trophy. Regardless of how either of those situations might make you feel, that isn't actually what we're talking about this morning. Church, what we're going to hear from John today is we have overcome And we haven't overcome because of our incredible work ethic. We haven't overcome because of our talent. We haven't overcome because of our determination. The kind of victory that we're discussing this morning isn't achieved by work ethic, talent, and determination, but by faith in Jesus and the gospel. We're also not talking about further education, career development, or some kind of self-improvement year. That's all well and good, but we're talking about overcoming the world, that sinful system that is anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-truth and therefore anti-Christian. We're talking about what Paul called the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces that are against us, you and me, and against all that God stands for. This is the stuff that we, John says, have overcome because we are in Christ by faith, and our Lord Jesus Christ is a victor. We're going to learn this this morning by way of three points. The breadth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, and the victory of the gospel. Three simple points. Again, they are the breadth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, and finally, the victory of the gospel. So without further introduction, say amen if you're ready. Our first point today is the breadth of the gospel. The breadth of the gospel, we see this right out of the gate in chapter 5, verse 1, when John says, everyone whom, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First this morning, I want you to note the breadth of the gospel We've already seen this a few times in John's epistle, 1 John, in verses like 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, but not for ours only, but for the whole world. 
Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, which says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior, guess, of the world. These verses have already been vocalized on more than one occasion by the Apostle John, so we shouldn't be surprised, church, when we read these verses in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. A couple of things I want you to note. First, I want you to note John's emphasis on the breadth of the gospel. Everyone who believes... Everyone who believes. Did you get that? Everyone. Even me. Oh, you didn't get that. Let me say it like this. Even you. Everyone. Not everyone by default, but everyone who believes. And of course, in the Greek New Testament, the original language that this book was written in, belief is not a word. There's no such word in the Greek language as believe. It's faith in a verb tense. Everyone who faiths Jesus is a child of God. Do you believe like that? Because if you do, you qualify. Because the gospel is available by God in the name of Jesus Christ to who? Everyone. The second thing I want you to note, though, is not only the emphasis of John's breadth of the gospel, but secondly, I want you to note John's emphasis on belief. As we've already mentioned, he says, everyone who believes. Now, we use the word belief. But in the New Testament, that really isn't a word. It's to faith, which is to say to trust to place your hope in, not just with your mind, but with your heart and your soul. This is not an agreement. This is, I am putting my soul in the hands of my Savior, Jesus. Everyone who believes. In other words, we aren't, Christians aren't, of those sects and groups that assert that salvation is for everyone indiscriminately, no matter what. That's called universalism. We are also not asserting that everyone who is a part of some kind of belief system, no matter what kind of belief system it might be, will eventually be saved. That's called pluralism. No, we aren't universalists. And we aren't pluralists. We are exclusivists. We neither believe that everyone will be saved, nor that every belief is sufficient for salvation. We believe what the Bible teaches, namely that we are sinners in need of redemption who will be saved beyond any shadow of a doubt if we believe in Jesus. But, and this is important, the breadth of the gospel is sufficient for everyone who believes. No one is excluded from Jesus who comes to him by faith. No one. We believe that anyone, no matter what their ethnicity, education, history, family dynamic, 
or any other point of measure it might be, can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, the prophet John gets a vision of heaven and he says, I saw people from every tribe and nation and ethnicity and language falling around the throne and giving praise to the Lamb of God. That vision of heaven is a vision that we should be emphasizing and welcoming in our local churches. One that experiences and appreciates diversity because God's kingdom is diverse. We have non-Christians and we have Christians. That's how God sees the world. Now, we have a lot of different shades and languages within those different factors But at the end of the day, we only have Christian and non-Christian. So it doesn't really matter where you're coming from, what your experience has been, what your educational or socioeconomic standing is. That is not relevant. What is relevant? We look at chapter 5, verse 1. Your belief. Because everyone, no matter who they are, where they come from, or where they go, everyone who believes in Jesus is a child of God. That's the breadth of the gospel. Church, if you realize your inadequacy before God because of your sin, and if you place your faith and trust in his son Jesus as your savior, you will be saved, and you will be a child of God. Which brings us to the next point, the reality of the gospel. We've looked at the breadth of the gospel, but secondly, let's look at the reality of the gospel. If you would, again, let's look at this text that says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Get this, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Next, I want you to see the emphasis that John puts on the reality of the gospel, as I'm calling it, the reality of the gospel. In other words, the gospel reveals itself in reality, in real time. There is a result to believing the gospel and placing our faith in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. If someone says that they're a Christian and they neither love Jesus nor follow his commandments, they are either spiritually unhealthy or liars. There is no middle ground on this issue. And you can say, you're very argumentative, Joe. This is not my point. This is John's point. John is saying that when we place our faith in Jesus, We become a child of God, we love God, we love others, we keep his commandments. This is what John's saying. So far be it from us, church, say amen if you're listening. Far be it from us to take what the word of God says and dilute it because it's too potent for our palate. We cannot negotiate on the truth of God. We might find it abrasive, we might sometimes find it difficult to swallow, but may God help us to find it. In this case, John says it simply, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, 
and his commandments are not burdensome. That's verse 3. That's our focal point for our second point this morning. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Church, say amen if you're listening. Love shows itself in obedience. Let me say that again. Love shows itself in obedience. For example, if people in your life tell you that they love you, but they can't respect the dynamic of their relationship with you, then they don't love you. They just love themselves. Or they just love what they're getting from the relationship, but they don't actually love you. Spouses deal with this in their marriage. It doesn't matter how much your spouse tells you that they love you if they're unloving and unfaithful. Parents deal with this in their parenting. It doesn't matter if your kids tell you that they love you if they don't live within the boundaries you've established for them as parents. Employers deal with this with their employees. It doesn't matter if employees say that they love their jobs, if they call in sick three days a week and give a poor performance when they are at work. These are all just illustrations, guys. Obviously, we're talking about something much deeper here because we're talking about Christianity, so it's something much more important. But I think you get the point. If we love God, then we should keep his commandments. If we say that we love God and we don't keep his commandments, we're being dishonest. This is such an important point, church, that the word love happens five times in the first three verses of this paragraph. Five times. I've told you before, and here I'll tell you again, that repetition adds emphasis when a word or a formula is being repeated over and over again, the author is trying to get you to get the point. And here John is saying, you can't say you love God if you don't love others, and if you don't love others, you can't say that you're being obedient. He's being intentional. He's not using the word love repetitiously without purpose. This is an indispensable theme to John when it comes to the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If we have been impacted by the gospel, we will have our hearts and minds bent toward obedience. Because love shows itself in obedience. I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, but do not do what I say? It might be a good idea to write that verse on an index card and stick it on your bathroom mirror. Why do you call me Lord, but do not do what I say? Beloved, to be a Christian is not just to be forgiven. To be a Christian is to be forgiven and
and endowed by God the Holy Spirit to love and obey God's word and God's will. If you are genuinely a Christian and you dislike God's word and God's will, you are not healthy. I may see you in glory, but you're limping there. A healthy Christian is excited about God's truth and God's will. If you are uninterested in God's will for your life and God's will in general, if you're uninterested in what God's word has revealed, then at the very least, you're unhealthy. And at the very most, you don't know him. That's a decision only you can make. But I pray that you'll come to that conclusion soon. Because justification, being placed in a right standing with God, and sanctification, being made more and more like Jesus every day, are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. There is no such thing as a justified Christian who hates Jesus. But also... John tells us in the same thought that not only do those who love God keep his commandments, but he says also those commandments, the ones to which I refer, those commandments, they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Loved ones, this is an important point for us to receive. And I want to say this, first of all, this doesn't mean that God's commandments are a walk in the park. That's not what burdensome means. It means that God hasn't given them to us to make us miserable. God hasn't given his law, his word, his truth. God has not given these things to us to make our lives difficult. In fact, the word translated burdensome means just that, heavy, of great weight, and troublous. God's word and God's commandment is not of great weight. It's not heavy. In other words, you as a sinner might brush up against you shall not lie because your sin doesn't like honesty. But God's truth is if you live an honest life, it will go better with you. Amen? This is the reality of his word. We may find it difficult, but it isn't burdensome. In other words, if we live our lives according to the word and will of God, we will have an amazing life. This is why James Moffat translates this line in his translation like this. His commandments aren't irksome. They don't antagonize us. God doesn't give us commandments that are whimsical or caustic. God's commandments are given to us to guide us and to bless our lives. And although our sin might want to disobey these laws, when we follow them, we quickly find out that these laws aren't burdensome. Being faithful to your wife is not burdensome. It's a blessing. Being faithful to God is not burdensome. It's a blessing. Living an honest life, not stealing from people, these things are not burdensome. These things are blessings. Which brings us to our final point. We looked at the breadth of the gospel and the reality of the gospel. 
Finally, let's talk about the victory of the gospel. Let's read this paragraph one more time together. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone, here it is, who has been born of God overcomes what? The world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Finally, for this morning, our text, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I want you to see the victory of the gospel. John says unequivocally and without hesitation that we Christians are overcomers. Amen. Amen. We are overcomers. He doesn't say that some of us are overcomers. He doesn't say that we might be overcomers. He doesn't say that eventually we might find some success. Church, we are overcomers. You need to believe it. And stop looking at Monday like it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. Or a challenge or difficulty in your life as if Jesus has not conquered the grave. He's not saying that you might be or that eventually. He's saying you are today an overcomer in Christ. Everyone who has been born of God. Who? Everyone, everyone without distinction, if you are in Christ, everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. Oh, you might have limped in here with some dirty sin and baggage today. Doesn't matter. In this regard, you have overcome. You will be in glory with the Father and the Son and the Spirit because you have been redeemed. And in that redemption, you have overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. And then he says these amazing two words, our faith, which is so incredibly important. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 said, By grace are you saved through faith. And this is not a work of yours, not by works that anyone should boast, but this is a gift of God. That word this refers back to grace and faith. By grace are you saved through faith. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. This, what's this? By grace are you saved through faith. This is the gift of God. Your faith is a gift of God. But it's not his faith, it's yours. God does not believe for you. You believe. It's your faith. And you actively engage in trust. This is the victory that's overcome the world. Your grandmother's faith, your parents' faith, your pastor's faith, my faith. 
who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? A couple of things I want you to note here. First, we overcome the world because we've been born of God. We overcome the world because we've been born of God. We've already established that this is by the grace of God, by his initiative, not because we loved him, but because he loved us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And because we believe, because we've been born again, we have overcome. I love that word, overcomer. Nikeo. In the Greek, it means to overpower, to prevail, to triumph, and to be victorious. Does that sound like your Monday? I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just asking you the question. When you stub your toe, do you shout, I, will, I have overcome? Get this definition. To overpower, to prevail, to triumph, to be victorious. John is saying, that's you. Does your life look like that? The word victory or victor comes from the same word as overcomer, Nike in the Greek. This is the word that the athletic company Nike gets its name from. It means victor, winner. This idea is something that gets played down too much in Christianity. We're so focused on turning the other cheek and being humble that we don't win anything. We walk around with all this trepidation, all this nervousness when we should be walking around with our chest up, our chin up, proud that we belong to the king and that we have overcome the world. Secondly, John says almost rhetorically that this is the only victory in the world, the only one that really matters. He says, who is it that overcomes the world except those who believe that Jesus is the son of God? In other words, nobody else is winning. We're the only winners in this situation. Now, if people want to get on our team, they can. Because everyone who believes will be saved. But no one who is not on this team will win. No one who is not on this team will be saved. Are you victorious? Are you an overcomer? The devil and sin in this world are constantly against us, right? Like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the world not only loves sin, but encourages others to sin and celebrates it when they do. All you have to do is Search through your Twitter or Instagram account or turn on the news and you know the world is lost. And, and we don't get it, I don't think. I think we turn on and we go, can you believe what's happening in the world? What? I can't believe this is the... What do you expect when sinners sin? What do you expect when lost people act lost? 
I expect Christians to overcome sin and tragedy and difficulty for the glory of Christ and the good of those around them because they are the only true winners in this game. We have overcome, he says. One author writes, it is indeed true that our warfare continues through life, that our conflicts are daily, that new and various battles are every moment on every side stirred up against us by the enemy. But as God does not arm us only for one day, and as faith's not that of one day, but is the perpetual work of the Holy Spirit, we are already partakers of victory as though we have already conquered. Is that how you're living? In spite of the difficulties that you face on a regular basis, are you living in view of the fact that you've already conquered in Christ? Or are you living under the weight of things that God has not called you to and not blessing you because you're entertaining? If this is the case, church, if we in Christ have overcome the world, then we should see the practical implications of this victory. I'm going to rattle off a few of them here, and you can write them down uh, if you're interested. Here's some things to consider. We shouldn't be riddled with anxiety. If you're an overcomer and you're a victor in Christ, if you are in Christ, this is a fact, then you should not be riddled with anxiety. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. You have eternity with Jesus. If you walked on your knees for 80 years, it would not even be worth saying that it would pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... In prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Who has ever felt anxiety? Liars. Come on, hands up. Everyone has experienced anxiety. We get anxious when we take our eyes off of the problem solver and put them on the problem. As if our focusing on the problem is going to do anything about the problem. It never has and it never will. We shouldn't be riddled with anxiety. Don't be anxious. Make your requests known to God. Secondly, we shouldn't be plagued with doubt. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have doubt in your life? Put a gauge on the fear of the Lord. Where's your fear of the Lord? There's a proverb that says, The fear of man is a trap for the soul. Some of us care more about what people think than what God thinks. And that is handicapping our life. It is plaguing our life. If we are plagued by doubt, we should check our fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. Don't we all want to be wise? Thirdly, we shouldn't be weakened by fear. We shouldn't be weakened by fear. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Well, we just got slapped left and right and stand up, sit down, walk over here, don't talk to people. You can go to the football game. Don't go to the restaurant. No, you can go to the restaurant. Don't go to the football game. They have, they have covered us in fear and then exploited it the entire time. The two main entities that our society operates on, education and healthcare, the strings that are attached to these two industries are in the hands of politicians right now. It's a shame because we've got teachers who are awesome. We've got healthcare workers who are awesome. But the system is being prostituted for politics. And as a result, people are walking around afraid. They're afraid of what the future holds. They're afraid of COVID. They're afraid of the virus. They're afraid of the vaccination. Not that vaccination, the other vaccination. No, the fifth booster, but not the third God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if you're afraid, know this. It is not from God. Fear is not from God. Doesn't mean you can't be reasonable. You're not going to go skipping down a dark alley at 3 o'clock in the morning. What are you doing in a dark alley at 3 o'clock in the morning? Being fearless doesn't mean unreasonable. Be reasonable. But be fearless. We shouldn't be handicapped by sin. We shouldn't be handicapped by sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. It's hard to run when you got bags on, man. It's hard to run when that relationship from 10 years ago is unresolved and unforgiven and you got bitterness, that root of bitterness. You know, that thing goes deep and you're mad at everybody. You don't even, you're mad at somebody about something with somebody else. They've never met. They don't know. They, but you're mad at everybody because the root is deep. You know some of these people. You go to the restaurant and, and the waiter or the waitress comes and they're helping you and they're helping you and you know you're like, they hate life. Because the root is deep. It's the root of bitterness in us, church. There should be no sight of that. We should not be weighed down by these things. We should be running the race that God has set before us with endurance, which we cannot do if we're picking up sin along the way. We shouldn't be disqualified by habits. Oh, the habits come easy, but man, are they hard to break. What we look at on the internet, how we speak when we're angry, how we treat people who we think deserve it. I'm sure you can list a number of things that would constitute habits that we pick up and find acceptable for our own conveniences, but God judges. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest 
after preaching to others, I myself am disqualified. Paul knew that a lifestyle that reflects Christ is part of being a Christian. He's not saying, well, if I make too many mistakes, I'll be disqualified. What he's saying is, I won't be disqualified because I'm in Christ and I live accordingly. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. How many of us can say that in view of the way this world operates? I mean, we live, I mean we're, we live in the time of Epicureanism. Everybody's like, how does it make you feel? It makes me happy. Then just do it. You like the way it feels? Yeah, I like the way it feels. It makes everybody around you miserable and unhappy, and it's probably going to judge you for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, but, but if it makes you feel good, do it. One of the worst lies the devil has ever gotten humanity to believe is that it's right for you if it makes you feel good. If we live like that, how can we claim to be victorious in the gospel? To close, let me remind you what John said today. There's a breadth to the gospel. There's a reality to the gospel, and there's victory in the gospel. Essentially, John says, if you're in Christ, you are an overcomer. Not because we are special. Not because... We have done much, but because Jesus is special and he has done much. Not because we are able, but because Jesus is able and willing. For our reflection time this morning, my question for you is simply this. Are you willing to pray where you are right now? about living a life of victory in Christ for the rest of this week and the rest of this month and the rest of the time that God gives you on this earth? Are you willing to say, Lord, I am a victor in Christ, but I've been living like a loser? Help me to live up to the name you have given me.